Hello again. You're listening to uh, our podcast, Filmed in Canada. We talk about Canadian films. I'm William Lee, and I'm joined again with... Uh, by Sorry. I'm joined again by... From the top. <laughs> Hi, I'm William Lee, and I'm joined once again by... Alexander Cairns. Thanks for listening. Um, today we're going to be talking about... Adam That's an interesting question... Because like no one's listening right now, or no. you're li- you're listening to yourself on headphones. That's true, but there's got to be some philosopher that's considered because at, w- at what point at what point does something become listening rather than listened? It's like I remember there'd be like signifier and signified. Yes, and I don't know what that means, but there's well, like two different things, right? From the past, we are addressing the future audience. Right, because but at which point does the audience become the audience? When they when they start listening. So right, but what if no one ever listens? <laughs> Our hypothetical audience in the future will uh, hopefully enjoy this. I'm enjoying this right now as I am both um, speaking and listening. Am I am I both the participant s- and the participator? <laughs> yeah. Well, um, this has been. That bullshit philosophy talk with William and Alexander. See you next welcome. time. Yeah. <laughs> so we'll talk about uh, Adam Egoyan's 1994 film Exotica on this episode, um, and uh, stick around to the end. We're gonna also talk about uh, recent movies we've been seeing, and uh, um, that may include Ten Cloverfield Lane or Midnight Special. Yeah, Did and we talk about that. We do. Um, I might have some thoughts on Night of Cups. Cool. Um, it's an older movie, but well, not that old. But I, I, I have some things I want to say about Mr. Holmes. Oh, and actually, it, depending on how the discussion of Exotica goes, I might have some thoughts about how it relates to Agnes Varda's Le Bonheur. Ah. I saw that recently. So all right. Okay. Yeah. That was. Uh, did you check it out? Um, when that was in preparation for your talk with uh, with Will Scott and Devin, Will Ross and Devin Scott. Uh, no, it was not in preparation for that. No, okay, because you you guys uh, referenced it during the uh, during that talk. I don't even remember that. No, oh, maybe it was during our other interview. Yes, I think it was. Okay, that other interview with uh, Tony Joe and. Taylor Ramos. Taylor Ramos. Which has not posted yet, so you don't know what we're talking about. And no one's, potentially no one's listening to this. That seems to be a thing that keeps coming up that I keep, I keep harping on how no one's listening to our podcast. I think at least 20 people are listening. Yeah. Which is great. And, and I guess I just need to get over my insecurity over the fact that no one's listening to it. So I'm Um, done with it, man. But we always listen to it at the end. Because we just, we, yeah. I I just don't, I don't count those as listeners. So then it's then it's at least 18 people listening to it. <laughs> okay. So we were part of the 20. The, I actually yeah. can, I can't I like I've mentioned my mom a few times. I can't even rely on her listening to them. She doesn't <laughs> consistently listen to it. So she's not up with technology enough to like know that when she gets a notification on her phone, oh, I should just listen to this now. She has to like spend some time and get get into the right headspace to listen to a podcast, which is, I just don't understand. Oh, but okay. My mom won't listen to it because no. um because I don't think she cares about the movies I see and I'm not married. So I don't count. Wait, what? That's another, <laughs> that's another story. Um, <laughs> she just sees a blank space whenever you walk into a room, <laughs> up until the point that you get married. Something like that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. This has been 
personal therapy with William and Alexander. <laughs> oh, we had, uh, but we did have um, a listener give us uh, an infinite leaf rating on the U.S. iTunes store. I can't find that review. My uh, friend of mine, Zuri, he gave us a review, but I, I don't know. I can't seem to like search it up because I can't get access to the Canadian or the U.S. iTunes store. It keeps feeding me into the podcast app which only gives you the Canadian reviews. Mm. So at some point, I will track down Zuri's review and read it. But he did give us if it leaves, yeah. He did. Thanks for that, Zuri. Yeah. All right, we're going into Exotica now. Sure, and uh, just Adam McGuane in general, to yeah. some degree. Yeah. Do you remember when I suggested we talk about Exotica, what I sort of teased as my, uh, my opinion of it was? Well, at first, actually, we can back up even further. I, I suggested at some point that we talk about Adam McGuane, mm-hmm. and initially you were very opposed to the idea. Yeah, I was reluctant to um, uh, engage in the exercise of rewatching his movies. Um, in, in like the mid-90s, like Canadian filmmakers were getting a lot of notice internationally. Mm-hmm. And I think I was watching uh, a lot of their movies at that time. Which, which Canadian filmmakers? Well, Cronenberg, uh, Egoyen, um, uh, uh, Jean-Claude Lausanne, and... Um, Guy who made the Barbarian Invasions, maybe? Oh, I forget um, his name. Yeah, the Barbarian Invasions came out at that time, too. Yeah. I forget his name. I will search um, it up. There was Jesus of Montreal... That came out. Um, so I think that's the same dude, right? Yeah, maybe. Uh, Mina Shum had put out some movies at that time. Patricia Rosema, too. Yes, yeah. So there was... Um, Denis Arcand. Thank you. We should know that. We should, but we don't, because we're, we're not experts on Canadian film. Wait. We shouldn't... What? <laughs> we're supposed to be... What? No, no. No, sorry to forget. Burst. Forget what William just said. We're definitely experts. No, sorry to, to like, uh, the truth stings a little bit, but we're not experts on Canadian film. We're just trying to discover our feelings about Canadian film. Yeah. Yeah. So when, when I was exposed to a lot of his movies um, in the 90s, I would watch them once and not watch them again. And, um, and I guess uh, that, that reaction, that initial reaction, stuck with me all these years. So that's why I was reluctant to um, talk about his movies um, but I, but then but, I, like a month ago or whatever, you you're like, I think I'm ready to talk about Exotica. <laughs> yes, I was like, all right, great. All right. I haven't seen it yet, but we'll okay. see what happens. So you watched it for the first time. I watched it again. Yeah. And um, what I'll say is, I don't think I was. I, I don't think my initial reaction was wrong. I, I think it was certainly my honest reaction in, in that I didn't care for it, but. Watching it this time, I I can't deny that I wholly respect it. It's it's like a really accomplished movie, mm-hmm. um, and um, so I'm gonna unpack that a little bit with us. Sure. Yeah. yeah so maybe we should just touch on kind of what it's about before yeah. getting into how it's about it. Yeah. Actually, um, um, so I was reading a little bit about um, Adam Egoyan uh, and sort of the the 1990s uh, Canadian film scene. And he shows up on like the international movie map, kind of suddenly. He's uh, an Egyptian-born Armenian, and uh, and he, I think he keeps a home in uh, in Victoria, BC. But he was working out of um, Toronto. He did a lot of uh, television work. Um, he actually directed episodes of Alfred Hitchcock Presents in the Twilight Zone. Yeah, yeah. Um, his his first feature that got acclaim at a festival. It was actually. 
it was actually Vim Vendors um, who won the award for uh, Wings of Desire. And it was 92? In 92, yeah. yeah. So when, he, when, when Vim Vendors goes to accept his award, he actually tells them, I'd rather you give this to Adam McGoyan. Oh, wow. Yeah. So that really brings attention to Adam McGoyan. Um, and he, he's able to, he's able to um, really launch his feature career. Um, Exotica comes about um, sort of at the end of his, uh, of his first 10 years as, as a feature filmmaker. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's in the competition, uh, it's in the official competition at Cannes, which um, at that time it was like the first Canadian movie um, to appear in the official competition since, well, since a long time. I can't remember what the other movie is. Um, so he he really was like the poster child for Canadian film in the 90s, especially in, in terms of like the new voice, right? Uh, and Exotica is made for under $2 million. Yeah. Um, so it's, uh, again, it's quite an accomplishment. Maybe that's, maybe that's a high budget for Canadian productions, but um, to see what he does with, with not a huge budget, uh, I think is quite, uh, it's quite remarkable. Yeah. So Exotica... Like it got a wide Canadian release, and I think it was very popular. Um, and it would uh, go on to the Genies and, and win nine, uh, eight awards, I think it was at the Genies. What's the Genies? I think it's some Canadian movie thing. Who cares? Canadians. Canadian film industry cares what the Genies are. Okay. What are the, is it like the Canadian equivalent of the Oscars? Okay. There's, uh, what other Canadian awards are there? Uh it's not the Tony Awards. No, that's, that's like Broadway Awards. <laughs> Gemini? Is that Gemini, something? yeah. That's what is right. Gemini? Yeah. I don't know. I, look this up yourselves. I don't yeah. care that much. Well, I guess the, the point is that he gets a lot of, um, a lot of peer uh, acclaim, a lot of critical acclaim. So Exotica, I think, um, in, his, in the early part of his career, is, um, is like the pinnacle of, of what he's able to do. Mm-hmm. And I think we'll find, uh, well, some of the things I want to talk about are how a lot of the themes that he plays with really, really are revisited to like their, like their, their best form, I think, in, in this movie. Yeah, right? cool. Yeah. Um, so to kind of establish what the movie is so that we can discuss it in more detail it opens with a guy leaving an airport and um and that's that's also going to be a character who comes back he's yeah he's a pet shop owner yeah and he's played by don mckellar we don't know that yet but we do see him being sort of observed by customs agents as he's walking through security at this airport and um uh yeah so don mckellar his uh, his character is named Thomas. He uh, drops another gentleman off in a cab outside of the strip club. That gentleman goes inside. This is a strip club called Exotica. As we go into the strip club, there's a, a girl in a um, schoolgirl uniform dancing on stage. Uh, the announcer is kind of fetishizing her. And as she finishes dancing, she ends up going to give a private dance to another gentleman. Um, and it's sort of discovered that this is a recurring thing that he comes back quite frequently for. Uh, that's a character played by Bruce Greenwood um, by the name of Francis. And uh, the dancer is... Um, Christina. Christina, play, played by Mia Kirshner. Yeah. And the DJ is Eric, played by... 
Elias Coteus or Elias yeah. Coteus or Elias Coteus? Coteus. I'll go with Coteus. Yeah. Uh, yeah. If that if that's wrong, please uh, please give us a call, Mister yeah, Mister Coteus. Mr. Coteus yeah. yeah. Um, so I don't know. It's 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 kind of a hard movie to synopsize, I think, because the plot reveals itself so slowly over time. Mm-hmm. So you don't really know what's happening and what the characters' motivations are until you know some scene some later scene which i found quite interesting because you kind of make certain assumptions about them and then it turns out those assumptions are wrong mm-hmm. um but at a minimum you know that uh francis has experienced some sort of trauma in his life related to his uh related to the death of of certain family members and um he's sort of trying to deal with that trauma by going to this uh strip club and then, and then there's sort of an alternate plot line where he is, um, he works for Revenue Canada, and he is investigating this pet store owner for potential uh, smuggling. Right. Initially, he's he 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 says he's auditing the pet shop, but he is yeah they're onto him for some sort of smuggling, yeah. potential smuggling, yeah, yeah. suspected. Smuggling. Well, and that's that's revealed fairly early because you see the character mm-hmm. sort of take these eggs out of these vials and put them into an incubator. Now, your, your comment about how it's, it's hard to synopsize, um, I think that comes out of how the, uh, the narrative is structured um, so that we're not... I, I don't feel like we're um, able to, um, to empathize with a specific character. I think we're just observing characters and we're observing their story unfold. Mm-hmm. It, it's revealed to us when the filmmaker wants to reveal it to us, mm-hmm. not, not through the experience of discovery through a character. Mm-hmm. Like most movies, there'll be, uh, there'll be a protagonist who, um, who has a challenge and he has to, he has to overcome it and he, he discovers the things that are in this world and you discover it with him. But it seems like all these characters know their world already, and they're just not telling the audience. And the audience just has to wait for it to come to them. Yeah. Well, but it's also in a way that they're not telling themselves. Like, they're, they're kind of avoiding their problems in a lot of ways. And so it makes sense that they're not, um, they're not sort of revealing their pasts to the people that they're connected with because they're, they're avoiding their pasts they are except that it doesn't seem like there's a a real reason for them to hide those details or to or to pretend that those details their their history doesn't exist it's just to it's just to um like toy with the audience i think um like the the characters um they have uh they're very they're very connected in terms of uh, the tragedy that's happened to francis and uh, and why they um, are doing their the, the jobs that they're doing, like they're all they're all very connected. Except that it it's not until like the last third of the movie that that we the audience understand all those connections, and at that point, their behavior changes a little bit just because like by virtue of us all knowing the same information, their behavior suddenly changes, mm-hmm. and so it just it just seems like it's it's the hand of the filmmaker. Um, just deciding we don't get this information until I want to give you this information. I uh, I tend to disagree. I think 
I think he's certainly structuring the story in a very deliberate way so as not to reveal information. But I think the, the story is about trauma and sort of emotionally distressed people not knowing how to deal with their situation. And so in that regard, I, I, I believed that, you know, the, the sort of plot twists or reveals at the end of the movie weren't revealed until that point. Mm, they, it didn't. It didn't feel like a. It didn't feel like a, a, a cheap trick. Okay. All right. At least, at least from my perspective. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I would love to get into some of those specifics in a bit. Yeah. Um, I, I want to back up right now, though, to the um, to the opening shot. If that's okay. Like. Or, oh yeah, yeah. Please always ask for permission anytime you change the subject. That. I, yeah. I, I, well, we don't want to be rude to each other on a podcast. If we get any more bullshit. <laughs> And um, the shit is going to hit the fan. <laughs> we, no, sorry, we get any more yelling, and the shit is going to hit the fan. Yeah, do we yell? Uh, uh, we no, yell but um, yeah. I'm, making, wanna... I'm making reference to the Winnebago Man. Do you know the Winnebago Man? No, I don't. Uh, it's like a popular YouTube video, but it, but even before YouTube, it was like a VHS tape that people would pass around. <laughs> oh, I've heard and about do. this. Yeah. And so it's, it's this guy that's making a Winnebago commercial, yeah. um, and he just gets so irate, and so the camera crew just left the cameras rolling whenever they were in between scenes and he would just be screaming at people and talking about how sweaty it was and how there's flies everywhere and it's Uh-oh. fucking hilarious it's like the some of the funniest like seven minutes you'll ever watch somebody and, uh, somebody made a like a short uh, like a documentary with all the yeah, yeah yeah a guy made a documentary where he tried to track the guy down uh, and finds him okay. okay that's a good digression let's Anyways. go back to exotica <laughs> so yes yeah, so you can you can interrupt me and and change the subject anytime you please all right the opening shot um, and actually, a, it wasn't an interruption. It's a, it's a slow pan. <laughs> it's a slow camera pan. Um, you see, it looks it looks like wallpaper. It looks like there's I don't actually remember objects on. A, okay, well, I'll try to describe it, and you tell yeah. me if it rings a bell, right? It's like a it's a it's a slow pan across, and there's um, there's you see like texture on a wall. It could be wallpaper. It looks like there's like trees and like jungle kind of. Um, imagery. Okay. There's, I think you see some objects in the foreground, like um, like um, maybe a, a table or, or cups. I'm also trying to just go off memory. Yeah. And then there's shafts of light with a little bit of smoke um, in in like a in like a yellow color. Um, did it strike you in any way? Because you don't remember it. You don't remember the opening shot. I, I I'm kind of remembering it now, but yeah, I, I remember it being just kind of like a cool title sequence okay yeah yeah um i don't i don't have any connection to what like if it's sort of establishing any kind of mood or theme well it it doesn't seem like it is um it doesn't seem like it's a scene within the movie so i was trying to understand why this uh why that sequence is in there um but the uh and also the the beautiful music by michael dana um on the soundtrack um, it has a very exotic kind of feel to it. It's, yeah. uh, it, it feels like it's um, there's a taste, there's a flavor of like of, of Indian music or Middle Eastern music. Yeah, right. It seems to me like a domestic scene that we're uh, just getting a, a, a very small glimpse of, um, and then the, the little bits of smoke seem to suggest that there's uh, something threatening or like you know if. Prompts, prompting the question, like, where's the fire if you, you're right. seeing these little clouds of smoke, right? Okay. But 
um, but then the uh, we we see um, uh, we see some images that remind us of the jungle that we're in the wild. This is it'll relate to um, uh, some of the imagery in the movie, and of course the the way the decor of the of the strip club Exotica. Um, but I, th I thought it was like this uh, this contrast between um, something th that suggests domesticity and um, and orderliness, and and uh, and the threat of something being uncontrolled. I think it functions similarly to how the opening shots of uh, of David Lynch's Blue Velvet function. Okay. In that, here's one surface. Um, Here's, here's the view of the world that seems like it's in order, but there's something else going on that you don't quite realize. When you burrow into the grass, you find bugs and ears. Yeah, yeah, in, uh, in the Blue Velvet example. Yeah. And here it, it seems like it's, um, it's an interior scene, but we're really in the jungle, that things are calm, but there's actually something on fire underneath it. Mm -hmm. And I, I, think it's, I think it's a very interesting shot, um, the opening shot. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah, because I, I, I guess I was thinking of the opening shot as being the, the customs officers in the airport. Yeah, and that also is like the recurring theme of, uh, of the film is how we watch people, right? Because we see the customs officers on, a, on one side of a two-way mirror. Yeah, and um, the, the senior officer is explaining to the junior officer, how, he's kind of explaining how to observe a person and how to pick up on on quirks and ticks to, to determine if they're hiding something. Yeah, and then Thomas goes up to the mirror. Uh, we're not sure if he's actually aware of it being a two-way mirror, but he's- I don't think he's aware. He's kind yeah. of like, um, you know, like trying to compose himself. But we're like very intently through the eyes of the customs officer watching him. And uh, we're gonna see a lot of two-way mirrors in this movie. They're, um, they're in that hallway in the Exotica Club. Yeah. And not a two-way mirror, but we there's a lot of uh, traveling shots in the car. So we're actually we're looking through the windshield at different characters, mm -hmm. right? We're, or we're, even or even like uh, at certain points when the car is stopped or anything. Like he's he's always he's shooting through glass a lot of time. Yeah. yeah. Or or even the uh, the fish tanks in the oh um, that's a, yeah that's, in the pet shore. That's, that's excellent. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it fits the theme of the movie really well. Yeah. Um, so the fact that there's this transparent barrier between us and the thing that we're observing that we that we can be safe in um, in our observation and and not affected by what's going on in the scene yeah that really feels like the way Egoyan likes to treat his characters is, is that they're just things in an aquarium that are going to interact and we're sort of we're sort of coldly observing them. We're not that concerned if a goldfish dies or not. We're just, but we're amused by how it's swimming around and it goes through the fake castle or whatever it is. And I think that's the feeling I get from watching his movies. I am observing his characters. I might be kind of intrigued by what they're doing from moment to moment, but what happens to them? I don't really care. And I guess that is what feeds into my, often my initial reaction to his movies is I don't feel anything for his characters. I would, I would agree with that sentiment to a degree, but more so in relation to the, the more recent of his movies that I've seen. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking of Devil's Knot and um, the other one was The Captive. Um, so Devil's Knot is about 
these uh, this group of kids in in the states in the eighties that were um, were accused of murder because they were like practicing Satanist rituals, but they were just listening to heavy metal music and having a good time. But they were accused of this murder and and actually put in jail, uh, but then later acquitted. Um, and and then the captive is like set somewhere in like maybe the Yukon, I think, and it's like Ryan Reynolds. Um, the girl from The Killing plays his wife, mm-hmm. and there's some other people in it. But anyway, that one's about like a sexual predator that, that kidnaps this family's daughter and keeps her captive, and they're trying to find him, um, and that's basically it. But yeah, both of those movies, I, fa- I, I would certainly agree with, with your sentiment that you're just kind of observing these characters but don't really care about them that much, even though they are going through these very traumatic events but um that's, that's not a reason to um to say it, it's a it's a fault of a failing of the movie or, or a reason not to engage in a movie i'm just uh, i i guess i'm just trying to make sense of um how it affects my reaction to it yeah, yeah. but in this particular case i uh i found i was very connected to to specifically francis's character just because I guess the most is revealed about his his past and his motivations and and he is kind of the central character but um yeah the, and 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 specifically in relation to your comment about the the glass motif of like because you're seeing everything through glass therefore it's as if the the characters are in this fishbowl that you're observing I find that it's more getting back to the the idea that the characters are um kind of in this in this traumatized state where they're not able to address their issues at face value and they're and they're hiding from them and they're not they're not connecting with the other people in their lives in order to work through that trauma um i think that the the glass imagery on a character level establishes that they are all removed from each other Mm. rather than the viewer being removed from the 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 film mm-hmm. okay there are there's a couple of characters that that seem to be more uh, initially they they're they're very connected um, that would be uh, the the owner of the of Exotica Zoe yeah. um, so, that sounds about right yeah uh, played by uh, Arsene Ar- uh, Kanjan yeah which is Egoin's wife yes in real yeah. life and yeah. yeah and she was really pregnant at that time. She was oh she was uh, yeah because that did not look like a prosthetic like yeah um, and uh, Christina the stripper and Eric the DJ so we find out early on we find out that um, Eric and Christina were used to be lovers yeah but now it it appears um, Christina and Zoe are lovers right um, so Eric is um, Eric seems to be um, having trouble processing his his new um, situation in life yeah it seems like he he's playing the part of like the um uh angry ex-boyfriend yes the jilted lover right? yeah so um okay but you don't you don't fully get a sense of you don't get a sense of of how um christina and eric like what what caused their relationship to to drift apart no but i think it could although although they they meet when they're when they're searching for um for Francis's daughter. Yes. So 
yeah, there's there's kind of a gap between when they meet and the timeline of the of the, of the, the main storyline in the movie. Mm-hmm. We don't know what happened in the middle there. No, no. And also the um, the timeline seemed a bit when we get more details about about their histories. I thought then the timelines got really confusing because through the flashback we find out that uh, Christina and Eric met when Francis's daughter was missing. Mm-hmm. And neither of them are working at Exotica yet. Right. Right. So then, so, so at some point they end up working at Exotica and then they're lovers and then they break apart. There's also a scene where Christina tells Zoe, I remember when your mother owned the club and they had that, uh, that hallway built. That seems like it's... Well, so so for, for, we don't know for sure that Christina wasn't working at Exotica when they, when she met. Eric. We don't? No. Well, we know that she was a babysitter. We know that she was a babysitter for for Francis's daughter, sure, right. but but we don't know how long after that fact that happened and yeah, like she she could have been connected to the club before she was a dancer at the club. Like she could have known the family just be, just because that isn't explicitly explained i don't think okay. it's necessarily like a plot hole not a plot hole it's just yeah. i thought it was i just thought it was a, a detail that given, given that the attention to detail me. in the rest of the plot mm-hmm. the fact that that was omi- omitted it distracted me because okay. it's something because we're because it's trying to establish the the timelines of these relationships and that is uh, a little nugget that seems out of time Okay. Right. Like when did uh, when did Zoe take over the club? When did her mother die? Right. Because right. it seems like this club has been there a while, and um, well, it just all I mean is it was a, a distracting point. Similarly, the fact that um, that Christina, well, I mean, let, let's get into this then. So Christina was uh, a babysitter for for Francis's daughter, mm-hmm. and uh, then she helped in the search to find her body. And now she's a stripper. And now the man who used to hire her to babysit comes to watch her strip. Now we don't, so we don't, we don't put all those pieces together till late in the film. So we only watch it like as, the last ten minutes. Even, yeah. Probably, so we, yeah. so we watch this movie, seeing um, Francis as this guy who clearly has some sort of problems, right? Yeah. But we don't know if it's if he just has a fixation for this dancer or if he is like trying to find a surrogate for his daughter, yeah. which would then suggest, um, um, suggest incestuous um, connection, yeah. right? which, is, which is something that comes up in a lot of uh, Egoyan's earlier movies. Does, that, yeah. does it come up in uh, the later movies that you saw? Uh, no. No, okay. All right. There's but, weird sexual shit, but not specifically incest. Not, okay. Yeah, although... I don't know that it's necessarily implying that he had an incestuous relationship with his daughter, just that he is now in his present moment trying to deal with his trauma through a sexual outlet. Mm-hmm. So he's 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 combined the image of his daughter as a young woman in this in this schoolgirl schoolgirl outfit with his need for some kind of release. Mm-hmm. In this case, a sexual release, but we don't really know. That's not explicit either. Like, yeah, because he um, he doesn't really seem to be enjoying the dances he gets. Well, so so one one example or one instance where I sort of thought that he was this kind of predator was when he first drops off Sarah Pauly's character, mm-hmm. um, who's his new babysitter. Yeah, um, uh, her name's Tracy. Okay, so and she was what like 
Like she she would have been like a fairly young teenager in that movie. I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, she would she would have been like fourteen or fifteen. Who's actually his? Uh, who Tracy is actually Francis's niece. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So which is another one that isn't revealed until very late in the movie. Um, but so he drops her off. I thought that she like just because the building was kind of dingy that he was dropping her off at, and there were some men hanging out up front. Mm. I thought that she was like a prostitute, oh. like an underage prostitute, okay. and that he was like securing sexual favors from her especially because he gives her money and then she walks away and but that and so the the ambiguity the ambiguity in all of those interactions including like the the dancing him him getting these lap dances in the in the strip club etc it it leaves it open to the to the possibility that he is a sexual abuser, I guess. When you when you finish watching the movie, do you are you still of that mind? That you do you think there's still a possibility that he's a sexual that he's a pedophile? It's possible. Yeah, it's still possible. I think so. Okay. All right. Like just because just because he experiences some some level of emotional catharsis at the end of the movie doesn't necessarily relieve him of any potential. Um, but uh, but I, awful things he's done in his past. But I don't think there's evidence that he has done no. any of that no right but i think the movie likes to toy with that it likes to tw- it likes to make you th- think that it's possible without actually committing to whether without committing to saying whether it, it happened or not yeah and I, I guess it's one of those games that the movies that the movie plays yeah which um which you uh, find challenging which i find annoying frustrating okay yeah <laughs> i actually that's that's one of the things that i really enjoy about the movie is that mm-hmm. um I I really I, I like the the pace at which the the plot progresses and and certain key points are revealed. Mm-hmm. I really enjoy that, and the ambiguity lends to a sense of uncertainty when you're watching it, and so you're you're questioning your own thoughts about the character because you you observe Francis and you you can immediately sympathize with him just in just in how he composes himself and. Like regardless of what you know about his past, you can just look at him and think that is a sad person. I want to know why he's sad. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, there are these hints that you know maybe maybe he's not someone that you should sympathize with. And so I I I, I do I appreciate that more than it more mm-hmm. than I would find it frustrating. Mm-hmm. Alexander, do you um, do you remember the scene where the DJ uh, or Eric? He goes in the washroom to pretend that he's a different person. To uh, and so he he sets up Francis to get kicked out of the club. Mm-hmm. Now I think when we watch that scene, when when we watch the scene, I think it's because he's jealous. Right. He wants to sabotage the connection that yeah. Francis has with Christina. Now he knows, but but Eric knows that Christina is in a relationship with Zoe. Right. That she's not in a relationship with Francis. Right. That Francis is just a customer who comes to get dances. Yeah. Right? But he's but he's he looks jealous of what Francis the the attention that Francis is getting, so he gets him kicked out of the club. Right. Now later, uh, when we realize that everyone is connected and everybody knows each other's history. Yeah. Eric talks about how he used to come to the club and it seemed therapeutic, um, but it wasn't working anymore. So is the reason that he got Francis kicked out of the club because he was jealous or because he wanted to, like, change his uh, routine so that Francis would find help elsewhere? I, yeah, I never really considered the fact that Eric might be trying to help Francis. Yeah. And 
It's another ambiguity. It's another ambiguity. That's sure. Yeah, it's a movie full of ambiguities. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it it's just one of those things where it feels like we're we're watching the characters, but we're never really in their heads. Mm-hmm. So, or we're we're in different versions of their heads at different points. Mm. <laughs> yeah, in a different frame of mind or uh, at a different time in my life, I would have I would have said that this is this is a movie that has that is faulted because of those things, and and now I see it as just like well, that's that's the style of this filmmaker. Yeah, and I accept that. Um, so I am. It's his deliberate choice, and and. You know, it works for some people. It doesn't work for others. Yeah, so I am balancing like my sort of appreciation of the of the craft and artistry versus my um, frustration with what I want out of uh, out of my um, um, out of how I understand these uh, characters' experiences. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, we haven't talked too much about Thomas's character. No, we haven't. Um, so he he runs his pet store. Francis is auditing him um, and, as we said, trying to uncover a smuggling ring. But he's also kind of dealing with his own sexual discovery, I guess you could say. And so in the cab that he shares from the airport at the beginning of the movie, he's given a pair of opera tickets. Ballet tickets. Ballet tickets. Yeah. Thank you. He goes to the ballet. He's got these two tickets, but he doesn't have anyone to go with. He ends up, uh, another gentleman's holding up a sign that says, I need a ticket. He goes in with this gentleman, and um, they're kind of flirtatiously looking at each other in the audience. And then um, they part ways, and that's it. But it, it's obviously suggested that Thomas is... He either is gay or he's trying to discover whether he is or not, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but then a few scenes later, he goes back to the ballet again, buys two tickets uh, with the intention of, of again, finding another, another man to go into the theater with, does that, and then, um, and then at that time, that brings, brings the guy home. I think, I think it's the third time he brings. Oh, is it? Okay, yeah. There's, I guess there's not a whole lot to say about that particular plot line except for the fact that I just I found it an interesting way to to explore the experience of a gay character in the sense that he's being like surveilled and audited I, I, I thought that was an interesting kind of sort of an indirect way to explore the experience of of being a gay person at that particular moment in history in the sense that you know he you can tell that he's he's not he's not fully comfortable with who he is and 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 so the fact that he's got people breathing down his neck doesn't really doesn't fully allow him to express himself hmm. it, not something that's you know overtly established but i i i just it i made a connection in my mind between the fact that customs and canada Reve- canada revenue agency are both after him right in the same sense that you know religious groups or other or other interests interests would be after the gay population oh that's interesting um also his interaction with those men that he picks up um it it reinforces the theme of how all of these people's relationships are tied up in or are are connected through money 
like everyone has to have a money relationship with someone in order to have a relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, whether it's uh, the pretense of um, babysitting, and so he can have his niece over at his house for long periods of time, mm-hmm. or um, or or buying lap dances so he could be close to Christina, um, or even Zoe and Christina are employer and employee, yeah. or and Eric uh, can't leave his um, his uh, fractured relationship with these women because he's in a job. Yeah, yeah. Uh, oh, and and of course. Um, what brings uh, Eric and Francis together? No, it's not, not Eric. Tom, Thomas and Thomas Francis. and Francis together is, of course, the uh, to to go through their money. Yeah, yeah. And and what brings them together even further is the threat that all of Thomas's money will be taken away from him. Right. So I I really appreciate how that is just like so thoroughly explored. And, yeah. And uh, it you know it's very um, it, it makes sense in this universe. Like yeah. these are people who. Um, who need an excuse um, to have a relationship with each other. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I think this movie is nothing if not very thoroughly explored in its themes. (laughs) It is, yeah. Um, Things I wanted to touch on were um, talking about the climax of the movie. I kind of want to talk about the strip club and and, and Christina's dance. Just the environment? Yeah, um, maybe it's just Christina's dance. Okay. Yeah. Well, yeah, uh, yeah, so when you initially said that you didn't want to talk about this movie, you mentioned your experience of watching it at the theater that you worked at, I think, is that right? Yes. And and that you kind of resented the fact that people thought it was this, like, scandalous, erotic movie? Yeah. I remember, uh, so this is in in, uh, 94, 95, right? Mm -hmm. And, And maybe it was, maybe, well, Canadian movies, it was, it was, they didn't often get like wide distribution, but here was a, a Canadian movie that had a lot of marketing behind it, and I think it was also expected to be like, oh my God, it's a Canadian movie about a strip club, and uh, it's going to be so salacious or so erotic, and and maybe my expectations were uh, skewed because of that, but I, I found it very, um, I, I didn't find the scenes in the, in the strip club to be particularly um, um, stimulating. <laughs> Stimulating. That's that. That'd be a word. Yeah, I was yeah. not turned on by the scenes. I didn't think it was like scandalous. I didn't think it looks. I don't think. I, I don't feel that they're intended to be. No, I don't think so either. It's very. When I look, when I rewatch it, you know, it's very well. The like the 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 way that this that that location is is laid out is is very. Um, you have a good mental map of it. Yeah, it's easy to understand the layout of the place, right? Yeah, um, and the decor. It's kind of cheesy, the whole jungle decor, but yeah. it makes sense for what it is. Yeah. Um, the lighting is great. It's probably better lighting than any real strip club. Yeah, the the decor being cheesy and how every time you go in to the to the club, there's this kind of like world music type stuff playing where it's it's like using that Middle Eastern or 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 Asian influence, but it's it's like a westernized version of that culture of those cultures. Through the, in the sense that you've got the, the fake palm trees and yeah. the, and the music is is, is kind of generic. It's cheesy. Yeah, yeah. And so um, that that was an interesting thing for me to observe in relation to um, another of Egoin's movies that I watched. Okay. Oh, but just before we get into that, yeah. um, when we talk about the, the decor, I think what I think what puts it over from over the top for me is the uh, the swing or trapeze. Yeah, yeah. I think that was. I think that's the 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 touch that just makes me 
like throw my throw my hands up and say, like, "What the fuck is this place?" Again, a cheap strip club. They just would not put put the effort into doing that. I guess. I guess. Like if it's Las Vegas, maybe, but not Toronto. <laughs> I don't know. I've never been in a strip club, so I can't speak to how many trippies artists they have. Yeah. <laughs> I guess I wanted either. I wanted that to be featured. It's probably. It's probably more more common for it to be like a stationary cage, maybe. Uh, perhaps. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, uh, but you were saying you, you were gonna you were uh, gonna compare it with another Igoyan film. Yeah, I think it's it seems to be at least based on those two of his earlier movies, Exotica and this one, Calendar. Mm-hmm. It seems to be something that he likes to explore as well. It's sort of a common theme in in the sense of um, exploring how other cultures get assimilated into Canada or North America. Mm-hmm. I guess so. In Calendar, it's about. Um, a married couple that go to Armenia and uh, the the man is a photographer who has to he's been commissioned to photograph a number of churches for a for a calendar for like a, a printed calendar that they sell in a store or whatever and um, that relationship kind of sours and so throughout the movie you see him um, meeting with different women of different ethnicities on on dates at his home and um, there's there's always like this cheesy kind of westernized Asian or Middle Eastern music playing in the background. Um, and then it's kind of this repeated sequence that he goes through with these women where I guess they're like hired escorts. And so they've been told that at a certain point in the evening when he pours when he pours a bottle of wine and finishes the bottle of wine, they have to get up and ask, can I go use the telephone? And then they go up and get, they go on the telephone and they all are of different ethnicities and have different, and speak different languages. And so they're speaking in different languages in these kind of, they're having these kind of erotic conversations. You just get the sense from their tone that they're having these erotic conversations with whoever else is on the other line. There might not even be anyone on the other line, but it's kind of this ritual that he goes through um, to, I guess, try and work through the infidelity that he experienced with mm. his with his wife who went off with this Armenian gentleman that they mm-hmm. meet on the on this excursion that they go on um, so I guess there's a couple things that you could relate to Exotica there but but sure. more more than anything what stood out as a connection between those two movies was the um, the exploration of of other cultures and specifically the the western appropriation of them okay yeah that's what you got out of the strip club yeah, that's interesting. Because uh, what I got out of the strip club was there's a lot of there's a lot of white men with gray hair in the strip club. Yeah, but and but the fact that all these white men are going into an environment that is intended to be otherworldly yeah. is like kind of insulting. Hmm. It's like it's like they they they're going to this place to you know be transported to another world and well it's it's, it's, like, kind of, it's, it's kind of like a it's like a theme park version of yeah what those places really are. Okay. It's also, um, maybe it suggests sex tourism. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Um, staying on the strip club. Yeah. Uh, Christina's dance, I find really weird. I, I find it, both times that she does it, I find her dance just kind of hard to watch because okay. it, it looks, um, it looks ungraceful. I think the choreography is weird. Be- and I wonder if they didn't have like she um she does a striptease to uh Leonard Cohen's Everybody Knows. Yeah. I wonder if they didn't have 
uh, well, like when they shot it, I wonder if they hadn't yet secured permission to use the song, because it seems out of sync with, her moves seem out of sync with the music. And also they just seem, her moves seem weird. <laughs> so it's, okay. Um, the, I mean, the one thing that I found more weird about that scene, and not in the sense of how it's executed, but just the, um, the way that Eric introduces her is just really gross. Yes. I just do not appreciate that at all. He like oh. he's like he's like, what is it about a schoolgirl that it gives turns her special you on? innocence? Yeah, yeah. God. It's, it's he, he always says, "Here's here's a sassy piece of jail bait." Yeah. He is he is the grossest strip club DJ. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but well, between that movie and fucking Crash, like Elias Coteus is potentially the creepiest dude ever. <laughs> I mean, was his Vaughn? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so we talked about that. Speaking of the movie, it's nothing, um, nothing earth-shattering. But just the, the, there's the one song that recurs a few times. It's a piece of classical music that um, I'm like forgetting the melody right now. But they used it a lot in Kenny versus Spenny. I know the show, but I, I don't remember uh, specific music cues. You know, I think of the music that uh, the from the ballet. It, yeah, I think it was the music from the ballet. Let's go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the um, the Montagues. The music is the Montagues from the Romeo and Juliet ballet. Right. Okay. Entrance of the Montagues and Capulets. Yeah, yeah. Okay. It's on the IMDb page. I was trying to find that. Um, yeah. So that music cue they use in Kenny versus Spenny all the time, and so I just I, I just wanted to comment on like how your experience of one thing can ruin it. <laughs> for any okay. other any other environment in which you encounter it. All right. Um, it's kind of like the like the something of the Valkyries, whatever the Wagner flight of the Valkyries. Yeah, how like because it's in it's popular because we always know it from Apocalypse Now. But I know it, or but or like I know it more from Bugs Bunny cartoons because I saw oh, it okay. in Bugs Bunny before I saw Apocalypse Now. So I think more of <laughs> sure. I think more of the cartoon than I do of Colonel Kurtz or however whatever context that comes up in okay. in that movie. But um, uh, yeah, they use it in Kenny versus Spenny all the time. So I just I can't listen to that music and, and think of it in, in the context of it being this like operatic, oh. powerful moment. I just think of it in terms of these two idiots fighting each other. Oh, that's funny. Alexander, I want to ask my name. you... I'm going to wear it out. I'm going to ask you, where is the climax of the movie? I would say the emotional climax is when Eric reveals to Francis that he was present at the when they found his daughter okay because because um francis has gone there with the intent of killing eric and right. then, and then eric confronts him in the parking lot with this information right yeah and well, i have two thoughts about that um i th- i thought it was the climax as, as well um my first time watching it yeah and i was just um i guess i just was disappointed that it seemed like such a limp moment um like it it didn't really for me it didn't really pay off well, yeah, I mean, like, I guess like, you, would, you, would, you would expect that scene to happen. I, I don't know. I'm just thinking in a, in a typical situation, that scene would happen in a more well-lit area so that you could actually see the characters' faces and their, and their, you could see mm-hmm. the actors' reactions to that moment. And, mm-hmm. and that's really where the power of the scene comes from. But they're in this dimly lit parking garage and you can't really see their, you can't see their faces. Yeah. And also it just like the, it, it builds up to a thing and then the air is let out of it almost immediately. Um, because because um, Francis is, is is just he's not capable of doing this act, and um, and Eric just is 
he seems really calm when he yeah. approaches him. Like he he doesn't feel threatened. He's just so it just it just feels like the tension in the scene is dissipated almost immediately. And yeah. I, I I wish you know if it was the climax, I wish there was a little bit more oomph to it. Okay. Right? So um, like if frogs fell from the sky, for example. Yeah, that would that would really make it better. I'm rolling my eyes just uh, for the benefit of, of our home audience. If, you're, if your sarcastic tone <laughs> wasn't clear enough. So um, reconsidering like some of the moments that lead up to it, I think, I think now that the climax of the movie happens earlier, I think the climax happens when, when Christina is uh, insisting to Zoe that Eric should be fired. Um, I, th- I think that's what's going on in the scene. Like, like Christina's really upset, and um, and they're talking with Zoe, uh, and Eric is trying to. That's when Eric talks about how I, I know who that guy is, and um, you know he's he, he's got problems, right? Um, what happens then is when when Christina is about to leave the room because she doesn't want to engage with the with the two of them over over um, in this argument. And Eric grabs her, and uh, I'm gesturing with my arms so that you understand what a grab is, but obviously you know what a grab is, so I'm going to sit on my hands. Yeah. So that moment when Eric grabs her, and she's thrashing about, um, and um, she's, she's like, get off of me, get off of me, yeah, and, yeah. But, he, but he won't let her go, and he, he falls to the ground with her. Um, I think this is the climax. Okay. Because what's happened is... All these characters won't touch each other. They won't touch each other physically, and they won't, or because they're not allowed to, um, by the rules of, of of the club and other things. They're separated by barriers like glass. Yeah. They're emotionally um, close to each other, so they're not touching. And at, and in this moment, Eric touches Christina in a very forceful way, and he won't let go. And I think it is it is the break in the cycle that we've been uh, witnessing in the movie. So from that, I think Eric is empowered to confront Francis, and I think I think that's what's happening in terms of uh, if we're gonna if we're gonna try to understand like uh, a, any sort of an arc to say like people have evolved in this movie because yeah. it's, it's I think it's hard to really see um, their uh, evolution. At least with Eric, he has decided like I. I'm not going to live anymore in in this uh, in this world where I'm disconnected with people. Yeah. I have to touch people. I have to and, confront and, them. and be an active participant in in the perpetuation of you know these people ignoring their their pasts and and not being able to move on. So I, that, that's fantastic. Like oh, that's thanks. that that makes me like the movie even more. Like that, uh-huh. that's that's fucking great. Yeah, that makes me like the movie a little bit more. Yeah, but only a little bit. I really, I really like that reading because, then, like you say, with with where where I was suggesting that the climax is is when uh, Francis attempts to murder Eric, you said, is he capable of doing it? And I don't really think he is, which is probably why Eric just kind of casually walks over to him. He's he's confident in in his reading of the situation that he can he can casually approach him and say, I was there when your when your when your daughter was when I I found your daughter. Yeah. I know wh- I know why you hurt. Yeah. yeah. And actually recognizing that that could be the moment that like that yeah so you you're saying you don't you don't see the characters change that you're seeing you're seeing an opportunity for them to change which I think is even more interesting in a lot of cases. Cuz actually observing the change or uh, observing the change is kind of 
it 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 makes things too obvious. And I I, I think I like in a movie where um, you need to work at understanding what the characters are going through and and have your own thoughts of where they might end up after. If it's if it's telling you, you know, okay, he's fixed, he's happy now. I think that's I think that's a terrible ending. But mm-hmm. at least being given the opportunity to change, I think, is a more interesting approach. Mm-hmm. I, I agree with that. I think I think the idea that uh, the futures might be more promising from this experience is, is a good way to to uh, is a good place to conclude the movie. Mm-hmm. So I'm then additionally frustrated by that last flashback sequence, which I don't think is necessary. The where it goes to Christina walking up to their house to to be the uh, babysitter. Is, is, that... it, is it her house or does she? I think he drove her home. Like it was. Oh, it was yeah, after, yeah, yeah. It was after a babysitting gig. So we see in a flashback Francis driving Christina home. She's she seems like she she says stuff like you know uh, you know I'm, I'm going through a rough time and I wish I wish my parents were as cool as you or something. And, yeah. And and he just uh, he gives her some kind of pat reassurance and sends her on her way. I just again that that scene I I just didn't get much out of that scene that final scene. Yeah. Maybe that's kind of meant to demonstrate that if he was a pedophile that could easily escalate into an encounter where he he tries to to make a pass at her. Do you think it's just you you think that the function of that scene might be just to put you at ease that he's not this monster? Yeah. Okay. I I hadn't thought about that until now but All right. I th- but although I think I think um, I think it is necessary whether or not that should be the, the final scene. I think it is necessary for for the the story for the for the film to establish Christina's full involvement in it because she was the babysitter gives her more motivation to be kind of wrapped up in in the in the pain. So yeah, whether or not that should be the final scene, I think it's a necessary scene. Okay. I'm always I'm also a little bit frustrated by movies that use a flashback as a plot twist and and then they they reserve like the key information until the very end, right? This one doesn't so much do that. Um like the 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 key information from the flashback, I guess, when we get to the to the end of those is is that uh, Eric and Christina um found uh, the body of of Francis's daughter. Yeah. I don't think it's like it's it's not really a huge revelation. No. Yeah. But um, and I don't think it's necessary to be revealed until until around whenever that climax happens. I don't, but I I also, but I think it could just be revealed anywhere. I I think that they're again, it's like the, the all the characters are aware of their connections. Um, mm-hmm. Maybe maybe not Francis, but all the characters are not. Um, while they're not openly discussing their histories, they're not. Um, unaware of their histories, so and their connections with one another. So again, it's just withholding that information is just a trick of the filmmaker. It's not; it doesn't really serve the, the telling of their stories. I find. Um, does that make any sense? Yeah, I mean, you've made that point clear, and I've and I've suggested that I believe the opposite. Okay. I mean, regardless of of your thoughts on you know, the plot elements or how the film is constructed or the flashbacks or stuff like that. I get the sense that in general, like you said, you feel like, you feel like it's an accomplished work of art. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I wouldn't, I would not dispute that. Yeah. yeah I mean, um, the production design, um, 
you know, the acting, just everything, everything is very well put together. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, let's wrap up our talk about it, about Exotica then, uh, with uh, two of our recurring segments. The first being uh, what makes it Canadian, where we just, we just try to identify the things that make it obviously Canadian. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, there's two that stand out for me. Okay. Uh, the first is uh, Canadian money has flashed a lot. Yeah, I noticed that. Um, and uh, and the double use of of Leonard Cohen song. Okay, um, I think this is going to be kind of a recurring one as well to a certain degree that um, other writers and directors appear as actors. Although Don McKellar has done other acting work, he's also a writer director, and I think was doing some screenwriting at the time of making. Exotica. Yeah, he was also a kind of a prominent name on the scene in the 90s. Yeah. Don McKellar. Aside from being an actor. And Maury Shaken, um, you may have noticed, he, he's a, he has a small cameo in the strip club as a customer. I don't know who Maury Shaken is. He's one of the, one of the um, better known uh, Canadian actors. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and then you could definitely recognize the Toronto skyline at certain points, like when they're driving okay. in on the cab, there, there, there was sort of a, an overhead shot of the club, oh, okay. which is kind of on the outskirts of the city, and you could see into the downtown. You could see the CN Tower, that kind of thing. Uh, yeah. um, and now let's uh, give this movie a rating based on our uh, made-up and arbitrary scoring system of Leafs. What shall we score this one out of, Alexander? 43. 43, okay. Um, may I go first? Yes. I'm going to give it 30 Leafs. 30 Leafs, okay. So that makes it like in the 70%. 75. Right? 75%. 70 yeah. to 75, yeah. Okay. Maybe that's a bit unfair. That, I guess that, that speaks more to like my mixed, uh, my mixed reaction to it. Yeah. But uh, if I was just looking at like the, the artistry of the work, it's, it, it's uh, you know, maybe 38 Leafs. Okay. Yeah. Um, so cut down the middle, it's 34. You would be giving it thirty-four. Oh no, I'm 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 up, I'm giving. You're giving it, two it thirty ratings. and thirty-eight. I'm okay. giving it two ratings because I can't. What, how, how, what would you have rated it back in the nineties when you saw it then? I would have said twenty. Yeah, yeah. Twenty is still like decent. Almost fifty percent. Yeah, that's pretty so, good. Well, so I didn't dismiss it. It's like right. It's I like just... two stars on the Roger Ebert scale. <laughs> yeah, which is pretty good. Sure, you wouldn't. I wouldn't turn down twenty leaves. Yeah. So on an artistry level, I'll give it. Uh, 39 leaves and on just like an overall level 34 and then on on the scale of number of leaves uh, that appear in the movie I'll give it a 12 because there were only like a couple of palm trees in the in the club oh all right I guess there were some trees outside of the the ballet venue so maybe like oh that's true I'll give it 15 out of 43 for a number of leaves okay. in the movie. <laughs> Scale, or I guess it, it's, it's both number and quality. And so since palm trees aren't really Canadian, can't really... So now you're going to disqualify those leaves? Well, no, not disqualifying them. They're just not as good as maple leaves. Uh-huh. So their quality is lower. Yeah. So, so we'll go... We went from 12 to 15. I'll go back down to 14. Oh, okay. 14 out of 43 for, right. for leaves quality amount. So make note of the, the type of trees you use, set designers, if you want to get a higher score. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for uh, talking about Exotica with me. Yeah.
Hey, well, thanks for sticking around. Uh, we just, uh, we haven't recorded in a little while, so um, Alexander and I were just going to talk a little bit about things we've been seeing lately. Yes, yeah, so we've both been traveling a bit. You see anything on the various planes you've been well, I, I did riding have, in? I um, Initially, I thought I was going to like catch up on some Canadian movies, because uh, obviously there's a Canadian and, and, uh, and French um, uh, offering on, on mm-hmm. the Air Canada flights. And so I'm not going to mention which movie it was, because I didn't finish it. Because it was it was a recent Canadian movie, I put it on, and for the next like for the next ten minutes, I was distracted by the movies going on like all around me, uh, by the people sitting in front of me and beside me. Did they just look more awesome? They all looked more interesting than the movie that was in front of me, and so I just like I just couldn't um, I couldn't get into it, and so yeah. I ended up turning it off. What's um, the problem with like when you're watching something on a plane? Like it really does need to like capture your attention because like you've got the airplane noise, you've got people walking past. Like yeah. there's even more distractions than like if you're just sitting at home and you've got your phone and sure. Twitter and whatever. Yeah, now the person beside you is playing a video game or watching a different movie. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I, yeah, I guess like what I needed at that time was a lot different. But then I did watch um, most of my internship in Canada, which yeah. which did which did keep my attention. Um, and it was just because, like, when, Hell you're, yeah, dude. when you're on the plane, you you're also prone to nodding off, right? Yeah. So I'm gonna I'm gonna uh, borrow that disc and uh, and watch it uh, so we can talk about it in the future. Yeah, yeah. that one is flipping awesome. Yeah, and uh, and the other thing that really kept my attention on this flight was Mr. Holmes uh, with Ian McKellen as an aging Sherlock Holmes. It came out last summer, I think, and then really uh, quickly disappeared. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a really good drama. It's a really good mystery. And Ian McKellar uh, puts... Kellen. Sorry. Ian McKellen puts in a really great performance. Don McKellar. <laughs> um, and thanks for the correction. Yeah. And it is... Um, it's a story that's for adults. It's about real things. It's about aging and it's about um, kind of reconciling what you used to be and what, you, what you're no longer... Um, and I thought about it when I was watching Exotica because um, well, we talked a little bit about my reaction to the way that the flashbacks are used. Well, flashbacks feature in Mr. Holmes as well, but they're very that, but they come across more organically because the character is actively trying to remember what happened in his past, and he's suffering from um, from dementia or or Alzheimer's or something, right? Mm-hmm. So, so he doesn't have the capability to just know what happened in the past. He has to like actively find something to jog his memory, and so we get his uh, flashback story. It, it's parceled out to us as he can actually discover it. And it, it for me, it just it's it, using that device, uh, the flashback device, in that way is just. It just makes so much more sense, and, mm-hmm. and I, I really like that. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I think um, I liken Egoin's use of flashback in, in Exotica more to something like how, like, I don't know, Terrence Malick weaves narratives together, where it kind of it kind of happens more so based on the emotional moment that's required, I guess, than it is a narrative device. Um, I saw Night of Cups recently, Malick's new film, and like that movie's just jumping through time willy-nilly. Like you never really have a strong place in where you're at in the story, but it's following the emotional arc more than anything. Hmm. And it's that it that is certainly significantly more um, 
abstract and um, less narrative driven than, than exotic is but but I think it they're they're using um, nonlinear editing in a similar fashion I rarely see a movie twice in the theaters and I oh. felt very compelled to do so with that movie so okay well I'm, I'm sorry I missed it yeah um, I I've said to other people that Terrence Malick's movies just they just connect with me in this in this way that I don't really understand and I I, I struggle to articulate it but um, every time I put one of his movies on I'm just enraptured and I, I can't I can't stop watching them hmm. what else have you been seeing lately um, saw um, what's his name's new movie Midnight Special oh Jeff Nichols yeah 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 I saw that too yeah it's good stuff I really I really enjoyed it yeah yeah it's a little. It's a little bit different from his uh, other movies, just in terms of like the scope of the story. But you can see uh, it certainly plays with uh, the the usual um, uh, some of the themes that he's he's addressed before in terms of like um, like masculinity and, uh, and and family and stuff. Like Coming that. of age. Yeah. Um, in the mud, I guess. The first um, the first like five or ten minutes of that movie, I think, are just really masterful. Oh yeah! Holy smokes! I was yeah. I, couldn't believe like the unreal the energy I was I was getting out of uh, out of that movie in, in the in the first uh, in the opening scenes yeah yeah the, just the combination of the music and the rumbling of the car engine yeah and um, the way and, that, yeah the way it's all edited and yeah. and you just don't you don't really know where you're at yet you don't no. know what they're up to it no, feels but, it almost feels like it feels like a road movie out of the 70s and they're just right. barreling along this highway yeah and uh, but the way that uh, you you know, you get enough information to like get you intrigued, but we don't we don't really fully know who these characters are. But mm-hmm. uh, there's enough to understand what their actions are. Like they're in a hurry to get into the car and get going, and they can't be caught. And then, and then the way that title comes up, it's like holy smokes! Yeah. I'm like I'm I'm in for this movie at that point. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of like a longer version of the opening of the guest, hmm. where he's just he's just running along a road, <laughs> and then the and then the title card slams. Yeah. But it's like a five-minute version of that, so it's even better. <laughs> it is. Um, yeah, I uh, I like that. Um, we also saw we also saw Ten Cloverfield Lane. Yeah, yeah. Did you? Uh, what was your the, impression of that? You know, trapped in a bunker by a potentially uh, violent man movie that's better than Room. <laughs> yeah. Um, it certainly handles that theme differently. Yeah, yeah, and it's very entertaining. Yeah, very entertaining, but also emotionally resonant. I would say I, I found I found the ending of that movie to really uh, pack a punch mm-hmm. in the way that I in a, in a way that I was inversely disappointed with the ending of Room. Hmm. I'm not ready to go back to um, um, analyzing Room. But uh, but certainly I, I liked uh, the arc uh, the I forget the character's name played by Mary Elizabeth Winstead Winstead Winstead, Winstead. yeah um, who I also enjoyed in uh, Live Free or Die Hard I Scott Pilgrim dude like don't oh she's good in that too yeah but yeah. don't don't ever mention Live Free or Die Hard why not <laughs> is so, it actually good it is good you, uh, so you haven't even seen it no I've seen it but I don't remember it no, being it's good. good we don't mix it up with um, the one in Russia which was what was that called A Good Day to Die Hard yeah which was it was just shit god awful Live Free or Die Hard is a good one 
<laughs> I don't even remember. Is she his daughter? She's his daughter. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, um, but uh, yeah, I think I think it was great. Uh, her her character and uh, her evolution in that movie totally makes sense and is very satisfying. And it's it's a tense thriller. It's good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I also saw a couple Agnes Varda films at the Cinematheque recently. Have you seen any of her movies? Yes. Cleo from Five to Seven, maybe? No, not that one. You don't know which ones you did? <laughs> I don't know which ones I've seen. I, yeah. missed, I missed Cleo from Five to Seven, but I did see Le Bonheur, mm-hmm. um, and it was fantastic. It was just surprisingly great. Like it's a, it's a pretty simple story. It's just about a, a married couple and the, the husband... Um, and, and they've got two kids and the husband decides he's going to have this affair but he sort of justifies in his mind that it's fine because he's still in love with his wife and um, like he, he he's equally in love with both of these women and doesn't see it as a detraction from either relationship but doesn't doesn't think to actually discuss it with his wife his first love um, takes a very dark turn at the end and um it's just very sort of satirical in certain ways, but also um, like almost feels like a romantic comedy. But it, it, it has a lot of different tones to it, um, but just has this really cynical ending that I loved. It, yeah, it was really great. Okay. Um, I've seen Vagabond by her and okay. uh, Bagnus Varda. And uh, I remember it also was a movie where the the character's trajectory kind of um, I found puzzling and, and kind of frustrating. I haven't mm-hmm. seen it in a while, but I mean, it's good. It's good. The one that I remember the recently, not so recently, was uh, a documentary that Agnes Varda made, The Gleaners and I. Okay. Which is a very, um, I, I almost want to say playful documentary, but she inserts herself into it because she's she's examining the tradition of gleaning in, um, in Europe where... Um, where things, where, where people like um, they make use of things that have been discarded by other people. You you might you might think that they're like people who are just hunting through the trash and getting things. Um, but they're but they're but it's like a lifestyle where they they live more. Um, I don't want to say minimally because that 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 word has taken on a, a different context. Yeah, yeah. But it's people who um, you know living they, off the land, so to speak. But yeah, in a, in or or other people's. Um, yeah things that they've discarded. But then Agnes um, actually takes that on as, as her lifestyle too. Like okay. she, she, she tries it out to see yeah. like what it, what it would be like to live as a gleaner. And it's, it's, a, it's a fun documentary. Cool. Um, so uh, we'll be, um, we're going to uh, be talking with uh, Tony Joe and Taylor Ramos. Uh, so we'll have those, uh, we'll have uh, that interview for our listeners in the future. And We'll be talking about some of the movies soon. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks for joining me, Alexander. How many leafs would you give our post-exotica discussion? Our post-exotica discussion? Yeah, we have, you have to would, rate the discussion. I would, I would rate it uh, five out of, I don't know what you're going to rate it out of. Whatever the score is, it's, it's five. It's a five. Okay. It's five out of whatever. I'll say, I'll say like 60. Great. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. Uh, our other content, our old episodes are on filmedincanada.net. And uh, we've got an email, too. You can send us an email if you're listening and you agree or disagree with any 
comments that we've made or uh, you know just want to just want to have a discussion just want to chat that's uh, filmed in canada at gmail.com and uh, i'm on twitter at married to a fly that's married to a fly with a t-o uh william is not on twitter but he should be so if you, if you did have a twitter account what would the account be oh what would it be well people people it seems like people don't use their names right they don't use their names on it? No, a lot of people do. They do? Okay. I just chose not to because I'm right. a fool. All right. So... I, w- I would hazard to say that William Lee is taken. Probably. Yeah. Right. Uh, well, you so... can take at Filmed in Canada if that isn't taken. Oh. Anyway, you can think about your Twitter address and uh, maybe create an account or never create an account and we can just pretend like you have one. Or I could create one for you and put your photo on it and then tweet as if I was you. <laughs> Just to force you to take it, take over that account so that I would you would stop being impersonated by someone. Anyways, thanks, Alexander. We'll talk again soon. All right.